Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Can everyone still see and hear okay? Give me a wave. Well, this is going to be a joyous, content, peaceful, celebratory, happy talk about war, pestilence, child suffering, Let's toss everything in there. Nuclear weapons, global warming. Am I missing anything? Now, before you all think that uh, Jundo finally has uh, lost it, uh, know that not even I have that kind of rose-colored glasses that I can look at those things and, and say, it's all swell, guys. All great. Not even I can put whipped cream on that pile of dog crap and call it a birthday cake, my friends. We have people here who have uh, been in the military, and either you've seen things with your own eyes or you've been close enough to it to not uh, have any illusions about war. We have someone here who's watching a close relative in their own home fade from this world with many, many ugly twists and turns on the way. The Buddha himself began on this path seeing outside his own front door death, aging, disease, poverty. That's what set him on this road. And yet, and yet, if there wasn't something truly peaceful, whole, and true, even in a world of war and disease, then Buddhism would have no meaning. Our being here today would have no meaning. And I want you to hear me out on this. Don't think that looking at the world, looking at the news, seeing pictures and hearing stories of children suffering doesn't break my heart doesn't cause me to cry. And yet, and yet, I'm here to tell you that there is something in a Buddhist smile. There is a certain peace, a certain understanding, a wisdom coupled with compassion that can see even through all that. And if that was not true, our being here today would be pointless. Some people think that Buddhism is about suffering. It's a very pessimistic belief. There is that. But if you hear the Buddha's true message, it was not only that there's suffering, but that there is a way to pierce through suffering 
escape suffering. Perhaps for the Bodhisattva to be amidst the world's greatest suffering and yet not a prisoner, not bound by, not deluded by suffering. Both are true as one when seen in a Buddha's eye. I'm not here like uh, there's a story by uh, Voltaire, Candide, you may be familiar with it, and there's a character in there called Dr. Pangloss. Whatever happens to Dr. Pangloss, he says, this is the best of all possible worlds. He has a, a positive turn on everything. In one scene, I believe, they're carrying Dr. Pangloss off. Uh, the natives have captured him, and they're about to burn him at the stake. And as the fires are ripping around his toes, he still says, it's the best of all possible worlds. That's not what I'm saying. I believe, though, that there is a chance for us to make this into a much, much better world. And that is part of the Buddha's message, too. My teacher, Nishijima, saw some things in his life. During World War II, his family home was burned down by American bombs. I believe his sister was killed. He lost children to disease. He himself grew old and sick. And yet, and yet, he would look at you and say, Buddhism is actually an optimistic, positive religion, or philosophy, as he liked to say. You can call, call it a philosophy, if you will, and I think that's fine here. It's an optimistic, positive philosophy. And you'd say, what? What? He would point out a famous Zen saying that goes hand in hand with life is dukkha, life is suffering. That famous saying is, every day is a good day. How can that be so? Look at what happens in this world. The battlefields, the hospital rooms, the, the, the pictures I posted of people suffering in Africa, people suffering right in our own homes. And how can we say every day is a good way? Every day is a good day. I'm here to tell you that not everything is just as it seems. Hear me out. I have a little laryngitis today. Maybe it's appropriate. A hundred years ago, this may have killed folks. Last year, I had pneumonia, went to the hospital, barely could breathe. They gave me a couple of shots, let me stay overnight. A hundred years ago, maybe that would have killed me. I think that's why I had such great difficulty to actually find many traditional Buddhist materials looking disease and war right in the eye. It was very funny, even surprising to me. We so much assume that the Buddha was always talking about things like death, aging, war, disease, that the old Buddhist sutras and the Zen master's commentaries must be filled with very colorful, very honest descriptions of all these things. And yet not really. I'll, I'll be reading you an example shortly. And I said, why? There's the story I told of the Buddha 
leaving his palace when he saw death and disease. That's one. But after that, the sutras and suttas tend to talk about the subject of suffering in very abstract, general terms. The Zen masters always spoke about death and impermanence. But somehow, not with great personal descriptions of their own suffering, how their loved one died, how the temple burned down, how there was a war right outside the door and bodies were scattered. You don't find these descriptions. Why? And I have a theory. Until recent times, I think it was all too common. If you were living in India 2,500 years ago, if you were living in India today, in some, maybe most parts of India, the, the poorest parts, death is literally all around and a daily encounter. There is no need to describe it. For Master Dogen, who died just a little, let's see, just about my age, There was no need to describe living in the, the samurai times, the times of war and generals and battles. There was no need to describe the horror that was right outside the door that even the doors, shutting the doors could not keep out. Everybody knew. Ask your grandparents. I've asked mine what it was like. My grandmother, I think, had 12 children, only six of whom survived. She lost six children. That was just the way things were. People lived until 40. You, looking at some of the, the faces out there, you'd be old men, some of you. I sure would be. It was just a daily occurrence. Now, you know, we complain about violence on the TV. We watch violence vicariously in the movies. Why? I think part of us needs to see this because in the old days, there was no need to make images of this. It was all around. And yet, there's a human tendency somehow to transcend all this. If you go to the great art museums, like the Louvre, and you see the paintings, you're going to see very, very few paintings, actually from the Renaissance, from the Middle Ages, that deal honestly with subjects of death. You will see some. You will see some. There were some great Christian artists who would depict very honestly, uh, real, what we would say realistically, uh, scenes of battlefields and suffering. But most artists, the human heart has a tendency to want to go past that, to, to want to smile, to want to find beauty. And most of the paintings you'll find in, a, in an art museum, even from those times, seem to romanticize or find uh, some religious beauty, even in the, the great suffering of the world. Only in modern times do we keep death hidden. It's something on the news. If someone dies in your house, the funeral directors come. They clean it up. So we have our modern artists who take pictures of bodies 
and they win the Bolitzer Prize for showing this to us. Because it's maybe too hidden from us these days. Well, I think there's something of this in Buddhism too. It was so common in everyone's life, in everyone's family, outside everyone's door, that there was really no need to describe it. Everyone knew that when you got a toothache, you didn't run to the dentist. It was a life or death situation if that tooth became inflamed. If you got a laryngitis like me, it could be your, your last week on earth. Everyone knew this. And that's why the Buddhist writings are focused on transcending this. The Buddha's, the Zen ancestors described going beyond death, going beyond disease, because everyone knew the realities right in front of their own eyes. That's why I believe I could not find many writings on the subject. But I'm here to say one more thing about Buddhism. If Buddhism cannot explain why this suffering exists, if it cannot teach us, show us a way to, yes, transcend the death, the suffering, the disease. And third, if it cannot find a way, show us a way, guide us on a way to, even while transcending and seeing through the disease and the war, if it cannot show us a way to somehow, someday make this world better, Buddhism is worthless. And I'm here to tell you, Buddhism is not worthless. Buddhism does those three things. And I hope today to show it to you. But first, let's look at some of the few writings I did find. I guess if you're going to look for uh, Buddha's uh, ancestors looking death right in the eye, it would be in uh, some of the sutras dealing with the Buddha's own death. And in those sutras, you find him saying, I'm getting old, I'm sick. And yet he finds a way to transcend that, transcend his own suffering. This is the point of Buddhism. The Zen masters of old, on their deathbeds, they would compose these death poems. I've read some of these in talks before. Here's Dogen's. 54 years, I'm 55 this year, 54 years lighting up the sky. That means 54 years doing my thing. A quivering leap smashes a billion worlds. Ha! My entire body looks for nothing. Living, I plunge into Yellow Springs. That's uh, Yellow Springs was the traditional doorway of death. Plunges right in. Dogen had a way of saying, when living, live. And when die, die as if your whole life depended on it. I posted this week uh, another uh, Soto priest death poem. Geshu Soko was a great uh, priest of the 17th century in Japan. And he uh, here references the Sandokai, which we chanted today. The absolute meets the relative like two arrow points that touch in midair. Hearing this, sim simply perceive what is. Here's his death poem. Again, the emphasis is on living this life, and then where do we go? 
Where do we not go? Breathing in, breathing out, moving forward, moving back, living, dying, coming and going, like two arrows meeting in, in flight. In the midst of emptiness, there is a road that goes directly to my true home. Um, another uh, famous koan from the Book of Serenity and elsewhere is about Master Mazu, our great ancestor. A monk asked him, Teacher, how has your venerable health been in recent days? And Master Mazu was actually uh, having good days and bad. And he said, Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. A little like the light on my uh, face, if you can see the shadow. Moon face over here, sun face over there. An old scripture says the uh, sun face Buddha was said to live for 1,800 years, but the moon face Buddha's life was a day and a night. I suppose this is just a commentary on impermanence. You live as long as you live, eh? One sutra I found, the old sutta actually, looking. Uh, Death right in the eye and child, children, family suffering is the Baya Sutta. Here the Buddha is, uh, describes a terrible situation. He actually describes several. There comes a time when a great fire conflagration, conflagration breaks out. When a great fire breaks out, it burns villages, towns, and cities. When it is burning villages, towns, and cities, a mother there can't get to her child and the child can't get to its mother. This is the first thing that uneducated, run-of-the-mill people describe as mother and child separating danger. And then he describes similar stories when a flood comes, when uh, savage tribes attack and burn and pillage the countryside, and the mother can't get to uh, her child. And yet he says this is the view of uneducated people. And then he describes, you know, it's really the same for all of us in life. There are these three things that are genuine mother and child separating dangers. What are the three? Aging, illness, and death. And he says, a mother can't get her wish with regard to a child who is aging, and the child can't get his wish with, with regard to a mother who is aging. They might say, I am aging, but my child or my mother should not age. They can't get it's their wish with regard to the other not aging. The child can't say, I am aging, but may my mother not age. But then the Buddha says at the end, yet there is a path, there is a practice that leads to the abandoning, the overcoming of these three, mother and child separating dangers. What, what is this path? What is this practice? It is the Eightfold Path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is the path. This is the practice that leads to the abandoning and overcoming of these three mother and child separating dangers. That's about as close as the, the Buddha gets to, to looking these things and right in the eye and prescribing a solution. Another famous sutta, he's trying to present, prevent a slaughter of his own people, the Shakyas, by a, 
an enemy king and he puts himself in front of the army and says, do not pass. And three times he succeeds in stopping that army. And I believe on the fourth time he can't succeed. And all he can do is shrug and say, it's their karma. Well, that leads to our next quick subjects. As I said, Buddha, Buddhism would fail if it cannot describe why these things occur, offer us a way to transcend these ways, these sufferings, and a, and a path of hope for the future. Let's take them one by one. Number one, how does Buddhism explain suffering in this world? Well, one way is to say that there is suffering in this world, and that's just the way things are. A lot of people said that's not enough of an explanation. So the Buddha, being an old Indian, reached for an old Indian solution, and he said, well, perhaps it's everyone's karma. Bad things happen to people, seemingly good people, because perhaps in a previous life they did something bad. Was the Buddha right about that? Were the Hindus right about that? And all the other old Indians who believed in karma? The modern Buddhists who still believe in karma, are they right about that? Perhaps. I'm not going to say no. Some say that it's God's plan, mysterious ways, the book of Job, Maybe God and the devil are just waging a bet on man's suffering. Is that what it is? Maybe so. It's not that central to my practice or the practice of transcending suffering that I'm going to prescribe to you. Maybe so. I'm, uh, how to say an agnostic on some things. But one thing I firmly believe is that the Buddha said this world is one of impermanence. That I can see with my own eyes. That our greatest modern scientists will affirm. Everything is constant change. We live in a universe that somehow has sprung life and it's free, it's organic, it's blossoming. The winter comes, then the spring and the flowers return. We have somehow lived, been born to live this life, and that is a matter of our free choice, that we can choose peace, we can choose war, we can choose to be gentle, or we can choose to use violence. Uh, the garden where I grow has flowers, but it also has, if you look closely, nature is has grown to be, to evolve the way it has through great violence. Our scientists tell us this too. It has been evolution, survival of the fittest. Nature has progressed because sometimes people must get sick and die for the next generation to come. The Buddha never said this world is anything but Sometimes a beautiful, but very, very ugly, sometimes very, very ugly place. He said, this world is impermanence and change and suffering. And he never found a cure. Get this. He never found a cure for death and old age. 
and war. How do I know this? He got old and he died. And when there was a war, even the Buddha couldn't stop it. So, yeah, that's the Buddha's explanation. This world sometimes sucks. Pardon my French. And yet, and yet, that's not the whole story. Otherwise, what are we doing here today? The Buddha said, oh, by the way, I found a way to escape, to transcend, to be free of death, disease, war, and all other suffering in this world. Buddhas and Zen teachers sometimes speak out of both sides of their sun-faced, moon-faced mouth. What is he referring to? Well, in the Mahayana formulation, there is no death. There are no two people in this world to take weapons at each other. There is no separation. There is no separate pieces, some of which have sharp and jagged edges to cut us. You just have to trust me on this if you haven't tasted it for yourself. You need two warring armies to have a war. You need Cain and Abel to have slaughter. But yet there was something prior to Cain and Abel, a wholeness, whatever we sometimes call it emptiness, where all violence and war and death is, I don't want to say washed away because it never really arose in the first place. To cut to the chase, there's something about our human life that is like being characters in a movie, a violent, sometimes funny, sometimes tragic movie, and we don't know it. And there's something about this Buddhist practice, Zen practice, many Eastern tradition, traditions, maybe even many religious traditions that let you see through that to a certain light that shines through and sweeps all the images away. We're, we are like characters in a, in a novel that do not realize that we are not, what we're experiencing is not the only way to perceive reality. You have to trust me that don't just trust me, trust all the Buddhas and ancestors who looking death and suffering, trust the Buddha himself looking death and suffering and war right in the eye, yet said, guys, there is a way. If you think the mother cannot get to the child in the fire, in the flood, in the, in the, in the war that the mother and child are separated, if you think that is what, all that's going on, then I'm wasting my breath here. There is a way, there is a path that transcends all that. This is why we sit Zazen, dropping thoughts of good and bad and war and peace. And somehow, somehow what emerges is actually, as I, we had some beautiful discussions in our Sangha forum this week. There's a, a joy with a big J that somehow holds and sweeps in all the little happy days and sad days and greatest grief and war and peace. There's a peace 
with a big P that somehow holds all the jagged and round and smooth and, and bloodied, broken pieces of life. Zen is Buddhism, is not nihilism. Neither is, they say, it's not eternalism. It's not to trying to escape from this world. If you ask me, the gift of the bodhisattva, all the writings of the great bodhisattvas are the way to be in the mud, yet not of the mud, like the lotus that blossoms amid and as the greatest crap in this world. I'm not putting whipped cream on that crap. I'm saying that crap is fertilizer. There is a way, there is a path that lets us see that somehow, some way, all of this is yet, not to be Dr. Pongloss, but all of this is somehow right. Jishin wrote something in the forum I'm going to take issue with later. And um, he said uh, something like, uh, this is about just being with suffering. No, this is about transcending suffering, seeing through suffering, being free of suffering, even as and amid the greatest suffering. This is about being free. It's as if one way out of one eye, you see the, 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 the children dying out of the other eye. You see that there were no children to die. And coming together, you are in a Buddha's eye. And there is a slight Buddha's smile that holds all the tears, all of it, the greatest horrors of humankind. I have had relatives who died in the gas chambers in Germany. I, I grew up in Miami in a Jewish community. I knew many concentration camp survivors. I worked here with POWs uh, from the allied countries who were Japanese POWs, like uh, terrible situations like Bridge on the River Kwai. They, and I'll tell you, there were two kinds of people. There were the kinds of people who somehow, somehow managed to keep joy and peace and, and uh, feeling that they belonged in this world, even having experienced all that. I'll mention my own father. He was not a Zen guy. He wouldn't know Zen from Shmen. He was not religious. He was not Jewish. It, he, he, was, he was just a great guy. He went through losing siblings to death. He went through... Uh, this great sadness with his own uh, children. He went through business failures. He went through sickness. I saw him lose his businesses to such a degree that he needed to keep working until the age of 75 in bad health just to keep food on our table. And I'm going to tell you, he was no cockeyed optimist. Yet that man always somehow knew when to cry and when to smile. It's not just Zen people who maybe have an inner sense of this. But our way is a very direct way to see through, to see the light that shines through the greatest storm clouds. Otherwise, I would tell you to quit this religion, find another, go find Jesus, go find stamp collecting. Anything would be more worthwhile than what we're doing here. But there is a way to see through the greatest horrors of suffering children, of broken hearts, of battlefields, of you name it. 
But that's not it. That's not the end of the story. Because uh, seeing the world out of one eye, seeing the world out of the other, and maybe we can escape, has too often been the only alternative in Buddhism. I think they had to. You know, as I said, a hundred years ago, you couldn't fix the world. There was very little. Even the Buddha could not stop that war. All you could do was say, well, we're going to go in the monastery, close the doors, and we're going to transcend all this. The world is screwed, and better luck next, next life. Literally. There was always the flavor in Buddhism that we cannot really fix this mess. Samsara is irredeemable. The only hope is to get out of this place, catch the next bus out. Well, a funny thing happened. First off, maybe in the past, um, somehow, uh, human, the survival of the human civilization was not so much in our hands. Literally, the greatest threats to humanity right now are us, nuclear bombs, weapons, we have to get responsible. It's not just nature anymore with the volcanoes going to wipe out our village or we're going to have a little war with bows and arrows and throw rocks at each other. Now we really could wipe our own selves out. We got to get serious, guys. About the environment, about many things. And maybe, this is another interesting thing, maybe for the first time in human history, we actually have a chance to really make things better. This is why Buddhism has kind of thrown the doors open on the monastery now and said, hey, maybe we should actually try to fix samsara a little bit and find the pure land here a little more than in the old days. Because maybe right now we really have a chance. It's not all hopeless. Maybe we can find a way to cure disease. We can make people live longer. We can somehow fix the economic inequality in this world. If there is Ebola, if there is the next black plague, maybe this time we can actually prevent it or cure it, like we've done with, uh, for example, AIDS. We haven't cured it, but somehow we saved, we slowed it down. We can do things. I happen to believe that the next step in human evolution will be the human brain, and I get a lot of controversy here, but I'm going to tell you, I would like to see something done to the human brain that if there's a, a criminal who is going to do a violent act, instead of throwing him in prison and throwing away the key, that we put something in his brain and when the hormones are detected that are connected to violence, maybe some tranquilizer flows through his blood from an implant and the guy kind of gets very zen. I would like to see war eliminated from the human character. I think perhaps, you know, I think we can do it. But that's a big subject for today. The only thing I want to say is I think Buddhism is actually pointing to the way. Why? It said the cause of all this is human greed, human anger, and divisive thoughts of ignorance. Maybe for the first time in Buddha really identified the cause. He knew the disease. And maybe for the first time in human history, we have a chance to deal with greed and excess, to deal with violence and prevent it, to bring ourselves together and prevent the division. I'm hopeful. I am optimistic. 
I'm joyous, I'm peaceful, and content. Thank you for joining us for the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.